Hello, good afternoon. This is Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, we are recording this on Saturday, December the 3rd, and you are listening to this on Sunday, December the 4th at 1 o'clock. Uh, my name is Jasmine. I'm your host, and with me today I have again my friend Anika. How's it going? Um, things are pretty good. I'm enjoying my extra time for like napping over the weekend. Oh, I was about to say, how did you get extra time? Where did it come from? Oh, I mean, like, not like extra in the sense that there's like more napping time than there is on normal weekends, but that like it's extra compared to the rest of the week. But I do also feel like I don't know. I um I've like worked I worked like I worked like two Saturdays in November and then I did like travel for the, you know, like colonizers day. Um so the weekends have been like kind of hectic. Wait, no, I worked three Saturdays in November. Yikes. So wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, so it is extra time. You're reclaiming your time. Like Maxine was. Yeah. I have a pin that says that. It's like a picture of her. I don't remember who gave it to me. But I was like organizing my stuff and it's her looking down her nose with her glasses, reclaiming my time. Like, you know what? I need to pop this on my shirt and just never take it off. Yeah. Try to like like make her proud all the time. Something like that. Or just remind myself that, you know what? Nah, I'm not stressing over this. I'm not, like, my rest is important. I'm not gonna, Mm -hmm. you know, let people run me ragged. Right. Yeah. All right. And on this week's episode for the local news story, we're going to be talking about um, Mayor Eric Adams' new directive (laughs) to involuntarily hospitalize people who are presumed mentally ill. For national news, uh, Anika will be talking about the, well, recently averted uh, rail worker strike and the conditions surrounding that. For national news, just in time for the Christmas season, in England and Wales, Christians are now a minority religious group. And for the good news, we will talk about the release of Tracy McCarter from prison. Uh, So for local news, I'm going to get started. Um, I'm reading from an article that was in The Gothamist. It was written by Elizabeth Kim and published on November the 29th. Uh, I'll read most of it. Some has been removed for the sake of time, but you can, as always, always read the full thing um, on your own. The title is Mayor Adams directs NYPD first responders to involuntarily take mentally ill to hospitals. Mayor Eric Adams on Tuesday issued a directive that would allow emergency responders to transport presumed mentally ill people to hospitals involuntarily. The move could allow non-medical professionals, such as police officers, to request such removals from streets and subways based on their judgment of a person's inability to meet basic needs for health and safety, the mayor's office said. This can happen whether or not the person poses an overt danger to themselves or others. After removal and transportation to a city-run hospital, doctors can then decide if the person needs to be admitted. 
The mayor's announcement comes days after police arrested a woman for fatally stabbing her two children. The incident is one of a string of violent crime incidents committed by people who reportedly had a history of mental illness. Adams also proposed an 11-point series of reforms in state law to govern the care of mentally ill New Yorkers. According to New York State's mental hygiene law, a police officer, peace officer, physician, or mental health professional can order a person to be taken to a hospital or psychiatric facility for an evaluation, quote, if such person appears to be mentally ill and is conducting himself or herself in a manner which is likely to result in serious harm to the person or others. Adams described the need to determine the overt potential for harm as a myth that burdens emergency responders, leading to assistance only being provided in cases where they are violent, suicidal, or presenting a risk of imminent harm. The policy states waiting for EMS may increase that risk of danger. The new directive removes this misunderstanding, according to the mayor. It would allow involuntary removals and transport to a hospital so long as the person cannot meet their basic human needs as judged in the moment. Deputy Mayor Ann Williams Isom said ideally that this judgment would come from specialized teams composed of mental health professionals and first responders such as the police. We want the specialized teams to come to that site and then do that work and wait for the EMS to come so that we can transport them to the hospitals, Williams Isom said. But the policy as written allows the police alone to call on EMS to make a removal, even if a mental health clinician isn't present on the scene. The NYPD is not permitted to transport an individual. The policy, which takes effect immediately, states that it permits these removals in order for the person in question to receive a mental evaluation. But the mayor's directive acknowledges that case law does not provide extensive guidance regarding removals for mental health evaluations based on short interactions in the field. At least one prominent civil liberty advocate opposes the mayor's efforts. Norman Siegel, the former head of the New York City, City, the New York Civil Liberties Union, excuse me, and an ally of the mayor, said the approach would open the door to numerous legal challenges involving the deprivation of individual liberty. He argued that the new directive was based on vague and overly broad terms that could result in non-dangerous people being confined due to speculation over their future conduct. He added that the administration's response raises questions about its intentions towards homelessness and the city's mental health crisis. Siegel was tapped to help the administration lead an outreach program to those living on the street. He said responders who win over the trust of homeless individuals will typically find them willing to accept mental health treatment. The problem, he said, is that the city could not accommodate the demand for for mental health programs. Is it out of sight, out of mind, or is it to help people, he said. The Coalition for the Homeless also criticized the mayor's strategy. Homeless people are more likely to be the victims of crimes than the perpetrators, but Mayor Adams has continually scapegoated homeless people and others with mental illness as violent, read a statement from the group. 
Further, his focus on involuntary transport and treatment ignores that many people cannot access psychiatric care even on a voluntary basis. But other stakeholders said they support the mayor's move. Catherine Wilde, head of the influential group The Partnership for New York City, which represents the business community, said, I believe the mayor's announcements today is a very thoughtful approach to getting people the treatment and support they need, and that's something that the business community strongly supports. In his remarks, Adams spoke of his partnership with Governor Kathy Hochul on the issues of public safety and mental health. Hochul on Tuesday signaled her backing of Adams' proposed legislation. Reach for comment, Hazel Crampton-Hayes, a spokesperson for the governor, said the mayor's plan builds on our ongoing efforts together around mental illness, including outreach teams in the subways and increasing bed capacity at psychiatric hospitals. Earlier this year, state lawmakers approved a five-year extension of Kendra's law, which allows the court to order a person to undergo mental health treatment under certain conditions. But some advocates have argued that in the face of the pandemic, New York City has not done enough to address the ongoing mental health crisis. So, um, yeah, I remember when I saw this headline pop up, I was immediately just very alarmed um even the way like it's phrased it is so so vague and overbroad it just seems like something that is going to be like very easily and quickly abused and even if it weren't abused like the concept just doesn't even if it were only being directed at the people it's allegedly supposed to be helping it would still be bad Right. But it's even worse because it's like who you're presuming somebody's mental state because what, like they seem upset or they look unkempt to you or right. they just exist in a way you don't like. I mean, this idea that like it's based on like this assessment as to like whether or not they can like meet their needs, like the city is not like guaranteeing that people's needs are met. It's just like right. guaranteeing that people will be like forcefully like abducted <laughs> and like institutionalized if like their needs aren't met. Um yeah, I like I worked at like a, a grassroots like homeless organization called like Picture of the Homeless for several years and like the founding like the origin story of that organization was that like um this is like in the 90s under Giuliani um these like two men were staying in a shelter and there was like a a young woman who was like hit in the head with like a brick um like completely random um and you know there was like I'm sure this was, like, a young white woman. Um, There was, like, a huge, like, media outcry, including, like, the Post, I think, like, running a headline the next day that was, like, get these homeless crazies off the street. And, like, these two homeless men in the shelter were, like, so activated by, like, that headline. And, of course, like, it turned out, you know, like, they found the person who did it. He was not homeless, um, but just like the willingness of 
the media and the general public to like conflate like violent tendencies with like mental health issues with homelessness with like homeless people like supposed to like look uh, having supposed to look like a certain way um and yeah I mean like shout out to that organization that um has like semi-dissolved but it just like it's such a Giuliani move yeah because I wasn't living in the city back when he was the mayor but wasn't he didn't he send people away like didn't he send homeless people to like put them in jail or something uh, I mean, I think like Bloomberg also like paid for like one way tickets out of the city for like homeless people. Um, okay, but... maybe that's what I'm thinking of because I'm thinking of the one one of them that was sending people out of New York, and Giuliani may have just been like being very extreme with locking them up. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was. Yeah, that and, like, conditions of, like, homeless shelters and, like, just, like, empowering the police to do, like, whatever they want, like, really, like, combined to make a powerful um, and, like, galvanizing environment. It's really, it's chilling. It's it's very, and it, the, that language about, um, people unable to meet their needs or that you know, you're looking at them and you're deciding this person can't meet their needs and that's the standard to institutionalize them and it's like once you go down that hole of being like flagged in that way like who like what's to tell like how that's gonna follow you or negatively impact you in the future like even if you don't end up being held permanently or for very long like that can still be devastating like right. for the mainly for the person that's being kidnapped and then right. you also are putting people who should be like helping people who are like actively in distress like you're putting them in a situation to potentially like be lashed out at or like in forced confrontation with someone that just happens to be like poor or just acting in a way someone didn't like. Um, But what I was going to say is like, it reminds me of what's happening right now in Canada with MAID, that um, medically medical assistance. (gasps) Yes. Because it's that same language of you're unable to, live a fulfilling life or like you're unable to do x y and z to have a normal life or a good yeah. life so we're going to give you the option to choose medically assisted suicide that's not a choice because you're right. refusing to give people what they need so that they can live right so you're pushing them into this situation and it's like there's so many steps that happen before a person is in the position where they're on the street and it's Mm -hmm. like there's so much that can be done to prevent that to help to stop someone from getting to the stage where like they might be acting erratic or they might like how okay someone might smell bad or like they're unkempt how are you going to be able to remedy all of that if you don't have a place to live like it's impossible So it's not, are they incapable of it or have they been 
like rendered unable because right. of like structural issues. And then instead of fixing it, it's like we're just gonna disappear you. Right. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, and I just I wanted to point out um there's a website called eugenicsarchive.ca and they have um a section on that website about ugly laws and ugly laws are not I hadn't known about them until relatively recently. Um but they were law they're laws that were on the books in the United States um and this is from the website so-called ugly laws were mostly municipal statutes in the U.S. that outlawed the appearance in public of people who were, in the words of one of these laws, diseased, maimed, mutilated, or in any mm-hmm. way deformed, so as to be unsightly or disgust to be an unsightly or disgusting object. And that was from the Chicago City Code of 1881. Wow. So, and it goes on to say that these, that such laws uh, targeted the overlapping categories of the poor, the homeless, vagrants, and those with visible disabilities. Um, And I I definitely think that that's exactly who is currently targeted now, but definitely with this change going to be mostly targeted by this, um, this new directive from the mayor that I'm every time I have to say Mayor Adams, I shake my damn head. Like I can't. <laughs> we didn't have to have this clown in this position. Yeah, no, agreed. It was like so clear from day one that like his biggest limitation was like his sort of like inability to like think beyond like being a cop and like and like the centrality of cops to like every single like social problem. And so. Yeah. It's sort of just, like, watching, like, I don't know, like, a train, like, rolling over people tied to the tracks. Like, there was, we knew that this was, like, the extent of his toolkit. Right. And, you know, this has only recently gone into effect. Um, But, you know, he is a public servant as much as he seems to feel like he's above it. He doesn't have to answer to us or whatever crap he said about if you don't have if you never put on a bulletproof vest like please kiss my grits (laughs) like you can still you know call his office flood him with phone calls complain you know let it make it known like when he does things you do not like you don't just have to sit back and be like roll your eyes and take it like you can push back in some kind of a way um Mm -hmm. so we'll be sure to try to put some links up on our show pages for how to do so um, and hopefully there is enough of a backlash that this gets rolled back because, you know, it puts all of us at risk, you know, like you turn away from the things that hurt the most easily targeted, like you're going to end up in that dragnet too. So on that note, you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and we're going to our first musical break. This is fitting for our playboy mayor a whole (laughs) lot of bs by funkadelic we'll be right back
follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. And on our show page on Facebook, we have a link to a fundraiser for Giving Tuesday for Radio Free Brooklyn. So Giving Tuesday is November the 29th. We're raising money for the station to help us stay on the air. So if you could please find it in your heart to make a donation to us for the holiday season, we would greatly appreciate it and every little bit helps. So please go to our show page, our Facebook page, and click the donate button. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And Anika, you have our national story. So I'll be talking about the recently thwarted railroad strike. Um, It hurts my heart to say it, but I've gotten the story from CNN Business. Um, It is by Chris Isidore, and it's titled How an Arcane 96-Year-Old Law Stopped the Rail Strike. Most labor disputes never end up being debated in Congress. But thanks to a nearly century-old law that regulates labor relations only when it comes to railroads and airlines, what otherwise would be strictly an economic issue became a political one. The Railway Labor Act was passed in 1926 as one of the very first labor laws in the nation. At that point, most of the railroads already had been unionized, some all the way back to the mid-19th century. The structure was therefore set up to regulate labor negotiations between unions and management rather than oversee organizing campaigns for new unions and additional members. Because of the law, the House was able to vote Wednesday to impose unpopular contracts on four rail unions whose members had already rejected the terms, followed by a vote by the Senate vote late, that, late Thursday that did the same. The, me- the measure now goes to President Joe Biden, who has said he will sign it. When he does, there will no longer be a chance of a December 9th strike that would have shut down about 30% of the nation's freight shipments. A prolonged strike would have caused shortages of a wide range of items, from food to gasoline to automobiles, and likely resulted in a spike in prices. The House also passed a law that would give the unions paid sick days, addressing the issue they said led members to reject the deals. But the efforts to pass the same measure in the Senate fell short even though 52 of 95 senators voted for it. The measure needed 60 votes to pass the Senate. Under the Railway Labor Act, the federal agency that oversees railroad and airline labor relations is the National Mediation Board, which tries to bring the two sides together. Heavy, like, side eye on um, this, like, wording about, like, bringing the sides together. Um, And it set up a series of limits and cooling off periods during which unions cannot strike and management cannot lock out the workers. And if all those efforts fail, then Congress can step in and impose a contract under which both sides will have to operate. In negotiations at other businesses, the workers' ability to strike is the most powerful option unions have to achieve their goals at the bargaining table. And even the railroads admit that the law makes strikes extremely unlikely. The goal of the Railway Labor Act was to reduce the likelihood of a work stoppage, said Ian Jeffries, the CEO of the Association of American Railroads, the trade group that represents the railroads, 
And it's been remarkably, excuse me, remarkably effective in doing that. As much, as much as management likes the law and its limits on strikes, the unions hate it. They say it would be far easier to reach a deal that their members can support if they had the leverage of a possible strike. And they say that management, when weighing the cost of that possible strike, would realize that they have the resources needed to meet those demands without an actual work stoppage. The four major railroads, Union Pacific, CSX, Northern Southern, sorry, Norfolk Southern, and Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway's Burlington Northern Santa Fe, reported some form of record profits in 2021. Wall Street analysts expect even better profits in 22, at least for the three railroads they cover. If they were covered by the National Labor Relations Act, the labor law that oversees worker management relation at most of the nation's businesses, the unions could threaten to go on strike. But under the Railway Labor Act, management can fall back on hopes that Congress will give them the deal it wants. This action prevents us from reaching the end of our process, takes away the strength and ability that we have to force bargaining or force the railroads to do the right thing, said Michael Baldwin, president of the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen, one of the four, union, one of the four unions whose members voted against the tentative agreement, agreements reached last fall that Congress is now poised to impose on members. The railroads denied they wanted this to end up with Congress, and they preferred to reach a deal with unions that, would, that could be ratified by membership. I don't think it's anyone's goal to get Congress involved, but Congress has shown a willingness historically to intervene if necessary, said AAR's Jeff Reeves. But Biden, in his statement calling on Congress to act to impose the rejected tentative agreements on the rail workers to keep them on the job, seemed to acknowledge that there was no chance that rail management would reach a deal with the unions. During the ratification votes, the secretaries of labor, agriculture, and transportation have been in regular touch with labor leaders and management, he said. They believe that there is no path to resolve the dispute at the bargaining table. The railroads refuse to accept union demands for paid sick days. Jeffries also said the railroads would only agree to make changes in sick day rules if it was within the, quote, framework, unquote, of the proposal put forth by a presidential panel this summer that was charged with trying to find a compromise agreement. That means for the unions to get the sick pay they'd wanted, they have to give up some other pay or benefit in order to keep the overall economics of the package unchanged. The likelihood that Congress will impose a deal along the lines of the presidential panel's recommendations or the tentative agreements means that management has little incentive to agree to union demands. The decision to urge Congress to take action was politically difficult for Biden, who was often referred to as the most pro-union president in recent history. When he served in the Senate, but... (laughs) Oh, brother. Uh, When he served in the Senate, Biden voted against an earlier effort to impose a contract on the rail unions to keep them on the job. Quote, as a proud pro-labor president, I am reluctant to override the ratification procedures and the views of those who voted against the agreement, he said in his statement Monday night, calling for congressional action. But he said he couldn't ignore the economic upheaval that a real strike could cause and that he had no choice but to turn to Congress and the powers it has. In this case, where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers to adopt this deal, he said. 
And he said the deals, while they weren't everything the unions wanted, were good ones for the unions with the biggest pay increases in more than 50 years and some improvements in other contract terms. On the day that it was announced, labor leaders, business leaders, and elected officials all hailed it as a fair resolution of the dispute between the hardworking men and women of the rail freight unions and the companies in that industry, Biden said. The agreement was reached in good faith by both sides. But the unions and their allies say that it's wrong to force members to accept a deal they rejected because it denies the workers the basic sick days they are demanding. During the first three quarters of this year, the rail industry made a record-breaking $21.2 billion in profits, said a group of dozen Democratic senators led by Senator Bernie Sanders. Guaranteeing seven paid sick days to rail workers would only cost the industry $321 million a year, less than 2% of their total profits. Please do not tell us that the rail industry cannot afford to guarantee paid sick days to their workers. But only four of the 12 senators who issued that statement, Sanders, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, voted against imposing the unpopular contracts. The other eight who signed on to the statement, Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, Cory Booker of New Jersey, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, Alex Padilla of California, Padilla, sorry, Tina Smith of Minnesota, and Jack Reed and Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island all joined in the 80 to 15 vote in favor of imposing the contracts to block the strike. So the... House vote that was 290 to 137 in favor of squashing the strike, um, that 290 member count includes everybody in the squad except for Rashida Talib. So just additionally disappointing. It's, you know, really, really disappointing to see um, to see workers get shut down like this, even with like you know, this like quote unquote pro labor president um, and uh, democratic control of the house, you know, like they have a month to like do something decent and they couldn't even like pull this off. And like, I don't know. I think it's also like the story like hurts a little bit because, um, you know, it's like such a clear illustration of like, ways that we have like failed to learn like lessons from COVID. Like I really thought um, at the height of the pandemic or like around the start of the pandemic that like um, there would be like more consideration about like um, workers' rights, like the protections that like workers need, like the lack of like paid sick days in general for like workers. And like um, it was... I, I felt hopeful when there was suddenly like such consideration for like staying home, like if you like did not feel well um, and for railroad workers to still in like 2022 have no paid sick time and like no protections for like taking sick time, even if they're like not, um, even if they're like unpaid um is just like so disheartening and yes it's really really disgusting and it just it feels like you know midterms are over let's go back to you know showing our true face of i'm only accountable to capital to money the economy 
what yeah. good is the economy if people are fucking dead yeah you know, every, every day still in this country we have many people still dying of covid you know so many workers don't have any sick time at all and for people who are so essential to getting us things that we need for them to not be able to rely on like having decent sick pay because seven days isn't even that's one week like that's nothing like that's you know it's more than what a lot of people get but it's still woefully inadequate right you know i think originally they wanted to have at least 15 in a year right yeah um, was what they were pushing for so I hope that they do like a wildcat strike, you know, cause yes. I, I would be, it would obviously be bad. Like as far as, you know, it would be a struggle for a lot of people to get what they need, but I'm like, that's what the purpose of striking is. Like if you, if you don't have that, you have no way of showing that you're important or like making them give you what you're demanding. Right. I don't know, like, I, I wonder, like, where the public's, like, capacity, the public, um, for, like, worker solidarity is, um, because I, I don't know, like, I feel like we are in a moment where disruptions to the economy, like, be damned, like, the people, you know, quotation marks and, like, all, around, like, all of these terms, like, would maybe support it? And it's just like, it's such a, I don't know, folks like love to like invoke the working class and like political, dis- I don't know, maybe that's not true. Um, <laughs> um, it just seems like there could be like support um, even from like right wingers for like railroad workers. It's like good, like working class, like American yeah i know what you're saying like because and it really you're already seeing in some of the headlines in right-wing media like the way that this is becoming like see biden is terrible you know like they're already using the fact that he basically stuck a knife in these people's back yeah and that's like getting a battery in their back about like this is why like where i mean democrats are the party of elites it's just so ridiculous. It's just such a damn mess. Like I, there was someone. Um, I talk about Twitter every week on this damn show. Oh well, I mean, it's a. But it's a- there was there was this guy on Twitter who was like, "Oh, this is um a text exchange that I had with a rail worker in Ohio," and the guy was like. I used to have an impeach Trump thing in my yard, but if this, if Biden does X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to like take money from my savings and give it to Trump. And I was like, Oh brother. Like I definitely agree that, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans ultimately, like, especially the top people, they both serve the same master of like money and the economy is basically Mm -hmm. their guide. Like you just have one side that puts forth more of an image of being for the people. But even when they are in a situation where they have significant power to do things that would help us, like Mm -hmm. that would help regular working people, they find a way to mess it up. Like even with yeah. like student loan relief, 
Mm. with abortion rights, you know, striking while the iron is hot and while you have the, like governing when you have the power to do so, there's always, you know, these excuses Mm. for them not delivering. I understand like the Democrats are bad. What I will say though, is like, while I could understand a person abstaining from voting because of Mm. what's happened for someone to argue that, and that's why I'm going to, vote for the people that want to launch us directly into the sun (laughs) like that doesn't make any sense it's like you already have that animus in you to want to be or like to support people that are like openly like driving us all to destruction it just doesn't make any sense if that's i'm not sure if i'm making sense but to be like oh because i'm upset with the democrats i'm gonna go support the party that's 10 times worse but you know like it or not as much as i agree with it or not like that is a political reality that people will go based on what they feel you are doing for them and you can Mm -hmm. only start on not being as bad as the other guy for so long right it's not gonna work you know or it's like you're trying to chase this imaginary center and you're running away from your base and doing things that are hurting people that would support you like it's just so it's out of touch it's disgusting the rail workers deserve so much better than this and yeah i mean it's not legal but i hope that they do strike or do some kind of stoppage (laughs) slow down there's other things you can do that aren't like a full-on strike to you know show their power yeah but like the railroad workers like because they can basically like rely on congress regardless of like who's in power to like make these quote-unquote agreements like in their favor they don't really have to like examine the structure (laughs) that is like also allowing them to have like billions of dollars in profits every year um while not you know, providing like basic, again, protections to their workers. It's just a damn shame. You know, that I will say it's been one, there haven't been many bright spots in the past few years just with the direction that the country is going. But one of the few bright spots when I look at the news is people waking up to the importance of organizing their workplaces. Absolutely. So I will, I do want to recommend um, a book to read if you have time to read these days. Um, I've really been learning a lot from it and it has helped me to stay grounded. The title is No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McAlevey. Um, You can purchase it, but it's also available to borrow digitally for free on the Internet Archive. That's at archive.org. The title, again, is No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. Uh, So you can make a free account and borrow it for an hour at a time to read it. But it's really good analysis and, you know, they title it the New Gilded Age for a right reason because we're talking about people doing the rail workers dirty what were they doing a hundred years ago you know it's the same shit so you know read up on that if you can and you know hoping that eventually there's a better resolution to this because this ain't it right not at all 
Um, so you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, we have Bob Marley and the Whalers with Them Belly Full But We Hungry. We'll be right back. to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our international news story. It's about a demographic shift. Uh, This is from AP News, and the title is Census, Christians a Minority in England, Non-Religious Grow. And it was written by Jill Wallace. Fewer than half the people in England and Wales consider themselves Christian, according to the most recent census. The first time a minority of the population has followed the country's official religion. Britain has become less religious and less white in the decades since the last census, figures from the 2021 census released Tuesday by the Office for National Statistics revealed. Some 46.2% of the population of England and Wales described themselves as Christian on the day of the 2021 census, down from the 59.3% a decade earlier. The Muslim population grew from 4.9% to 6.5% of the total, while 1.7% identified as Hindu, up from 1.5%. More than one in three people, 37%, said they had no religion, which is up from 25% in 2011. The other parts of the UK, Scotland and Northern Ireland, report their census results separately. Secularism secularism campaigners said the shift should trigger a rethink of the way religion is entrenched in British society. The UK has state-funded Church of England schools, Anglican bishops sit in Parliament's upper chamber, and the monarch is defender of the faith 
and Supreme Governor of the Church. Andrew Copson, Chief Executive of the charity Humanist UK, said the dramatic growth of the non-religious had made the UK almost certainly one of the least religious countries on earth. One of the most striking things about these results is how at odds the population is from the state itself, he said. No state in Europe has such a religious setup as we do in terms of law and public policy, while at the same time having such a non-religious population. Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, one of the most senior clerics in the Church of England, said the data was not a great surprise, but was a challenge to Christians to work harder to promote their faith. We have left behind the era where many people almost automatically identified as Christian, but other surveys consistently show how the same people still seek spiritual truth and wisdom and a set of values to live by, he said. Almost 82% of people in England and Wales identified as white in the census, down from 86% in 2011. Some 9% said they were Asian, 4% Black, and 3% from mixed or multiple ethnic backgrounds, while 2% identified with another ethnic group. Uh, and this is just um, something brief from the website secularism.org.uk. Uh, so the National Secular Society has called for separation of church and state after the census data revealed that less than half the population are Christian for the first time. Uh, and it points out that in Wales in particular, the non-religious group is the, is the largest um, belief group in Wales. Uh, because for them, the no religion category went from 32% up to 47%. And in Scotland, uh, they didn't publish the latest census data yet. But in 2018, a survey found that 59% of Scots are non-religious. Uh, and this is something I didn't know until recently, that one third of state schools in Britain are faith schools. And all state schools must, by law, hold daily acts of Christian collective worship. So, yeah, I thought, um, especially as we head into what a lot of people consider to be the Christmas season, um, there's a lot of Christian hegemony that yeah. gets taken for granted, especially here in the U.S. So that was um, an interesting headline to see, and I think it's... I think that that's good news, frankly. Yeah, I I had heard that headline, but I um, this is the first time that I'm like hearing a sort of like a uh, breakdown of um like what people's like faith claimed faiths or like religions were, um, and I really like assumed I don't know I was assume I was assuming that um the it was like increasingly like non-Christian because of like immigration from like Muslim countries. But I also like my limited knowledge of like the racial demographics in the UK was just like made me think that that was impossible. So like even with like those sort of like machinations in my head, it did not occur to me that like the growth was in non-religious people um and yeah I don't know good for them allegedly in this country we're supposed to have a separation of church and state like we can very <laughs> clearly see how much that has been 
you know, warped, perverted is not really true in practice. I had always assumed that in the, that in England, that it was way more separate and that, you know, the religious figures were kept in like a separate category. I did Mm -hmm. not under, I did not realize like the extent to which they're entrenched in the government and have these positions set aside for them. I also, there was this um, podcast I listened to that was about like a scandal having to do with a Muslim teacher, something like that in England. I don't know. It wasn't, it was. I know what you're talking about. The name of that podcast was the Trojan Horse Affair. Um, But it was listening to that podcast that I learned that they have that religious devotion, like Christian devotion thing that they have to do public school I was like what but they were allowed to do like I think they could do like a Muslim prayer instead Mm -hmm. or something but they said that the law is like you have to do some kind of daily Christian collective worship thing and that shocked the hell out of me I was like not in not in tea and crumpet land I thought they were (laughs) you know yeah like beyond that but i i guess not so yeah it's i'm not even like a non-believer like i i don't know i don't know like what the proper term for me would be but um i do believe in god i guess i am a theist but um like i'm not particularly like engaged in like any sort of like search for anything and i i don't uh I, like, go to church when I, like, when I'm visiting my parents or, like, when I'm, like, visiting family, but, like, otherwise, like, do not engage in any sort of, like, practice around that. But, like, I do firmly believe that that is something that, like, the practitioner should be, like, practicing on their own. And if it, like, informs the world around them, then cool. But it's not something that should be, like, imposed by the state. Even stuff, like, that you, there's so much that, you don't really think about it's like I I grew up not celebrating Christmas like for reasons I'm not gonna get into but like in my household like it was a non-thing so Mm -hmm. like not being I think being on the outside of something like that like you realize like how much the world around you revolves around the assumption that Mm -hmm. you observe certain holiday or that you do engage in certain things and that you organize your life around certain stuff because of what is of the official religion. And like something you said was interesting, like that you're a theist. And I'm like, I think that this, the way the census is, I think it's just kind of like, you know how in the U S in the census, like, well, the, the categories determine the results that you get. So like, if you allow people to check off that they're biracial then people that maybe in one census year would check black are now checking a different box. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I wonder how much of it is that it's like, maybe it used to be like Christian, atheist, Jewish, Muslim. And it's like, if you, okay, like, well, if I have to pick one, I'll put Christian. Cause maybe mm-hmm. you grew up going to a church. But then if you leave the question open, like no official religion, like right. people are like, oh, maybe I fit there because like, I believe in something or I do these things, but I don't feel like I don't strongly identify with this one group, you know? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Do, I don't think, 
we don't have any sort of like religious markers on us on our census, right? I don't think it came. I don't think it was there. Yeah, I don't think so either. Maybe it's there. Maybe it's on theirs because that is like they have a state religion. Yeah, and, oh, and they have to. I know it was um some recent news thing where it's like in Northern Ireland, like there's more Catholics than Protestants or something recently. Mm. Like, oh wow, <laughs> everything is everything is changing. Yeah, chaos under the heavens. I mean, hey, what else is new? I know I'm getting ready to make, like, I have a column in my apartment, and I just decided I'm going to make a Festivus poll. Oh, nice. Have you ever, you know that Seinfeld episode? Yeah. A Festivus for the rest of us. Yes. (laughs) It's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. I know, I'm sure my cat is as well. Word, yeah. All right, so to wrap up the week, we have some good news. Um, okay, but on to the good news. Um, and so this is published in The Nation, um, titled A Judge Dismisses the Murder Charge Against a Domestic Violence Survivor. Um, and this is by Victoria Law, who, full disclosure, is a friend of mine um, and someone I respect. And just some like background on Tracy McCarter, again, from that same article, as I previously reported for The Nation, McCarter has been living her worst nightmare since that fateful evening when she allowed her husband, Jim Murray, from whom she had been separated into her apartment. She let him in to prevent her building's management company from evicting her for his constant harassment of her neighbors. Instead of falling asleep on her couch, he demanded money and attacked her when she refused. Murray died from a stab wound to his chest. In legal filings, McCarter maintained that he lunged at her, tripped, and fell on the knife that she had grabbed to ward him off. McCarter spent six months at Rikers despite not having been indicted. A grand jury later indicted her in September 2020, and her murder trial was set to begin this past Monday. Instead, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg eventually kept his campaign promise, even appearing in person to argue before Judge Kissel that that the charge against McCarter should be dismissed. On Friday, shortly after 5 p.m., Kissel issued the 11-page decision, ultimately, though reluctantly, ruling in favor of Bragg's motion to dismiss the second-degree murder charge against McCarter. The judge referenced letters opposing the dismissal from Murray's brother and ex-wife. So this is um, a bit... It's a victory, but... um, McCarter is not yet out of jail. She's been on Rikers Island since March um, 2020. But um, the ruling that was like issued on Friday evening um, still allows the DA, Alvin Bragg, to um, like she'll be held on Rikers for another 60 days while the DA gets the option to um, consider whether to charge her with like um, something lesser. for now, this, you know, this represents a victory for um, all of the people who have been, like, organizing. Um, I mean, it's a victory for Tracy McCarter, obviously. It's a victory for, like, the people who have yeah. been, like, organizing. Um, and shout out to um, survived the organization Survived and Punished in particular that did a lot of organizing to support, um, to support Tracy McCarter and, like, keep her name in case um 
like in the public eye. This was actually like, I think like the organizing was like so effective that like we can thank those folks for and like you know a range of people not just survived and punished but um this was actually like one of the issues in the um camp the district attorney campaigns like whether um there would be like support and like examination of like um cases for um people who had survived like domestic violence the fact that he like dragged his feet for this long to um, actually like dismiss the charges is like disappointing, but it's cool that it has happened now. It's, I mean, it's wonderful news for her and like, we'll definitely put information about survived and punished on our show pages. So people know how to get involved. Like if you're, you know, at all, like caring about what happens to people once they get into the system and like how unjust the system is. Like, yeah. I definitely recommend that group. All right. So this has been a show. We have come to the end of Objection to the Rule for this week. Um, keep listening for more community-based Brooklyn radio. And for our last song, um, the music world lost someone recently. Uh, Christine McVie of Fleetwood oh. Mac passed away. Um, and so in her memory, we're going to play you out with my favorite Fleetwood Mac song. This is The Chain from Rumors. Uh, thanks a lot for listening and have a great rest of your week. Bye. Bye, y'all.